The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Thirteen years ago, and my phone rang. It was a young adult in our church who said, I don't really know whether or not I should make this call to you or not. But I feel like you should know that I just left a kind of uh, lunch meeting of sorts where one of the other pastors on staff reached out to me and one of the other young adults and invited us to lunch. And at that lunch, asked what we thought about your leading the young adult ministries in our church. I said, okay. Did... I don't really know, know what to think. Yeah, I just... They then kind of asked about the the kind of job that he asked us, the kind of job that you were doing and how we felt about it. And it just kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable for me. And I don't know whether or not I should have told you, but I felt like you had a right to know. No, I immediately understood the context of this phone conversation because just a couple of months prior, I was only about six months or so into my time at this particular church this other co-worker who had been responsible for young adult ministries in a college and university town in that church, the senior minister had made a decision to move that area of responsibility under my area of responsibility. And this co-worker didn't really like that decision. I didn't ask for it. I hadn't requested it or been a part of the decision making. It was a decision made by the person who was responsible for the overall ministry of the church and I decided to take it and move forward. I kind of began to pray and think about, okay, what's the right response here? Do I go and sit down with this co-worker and say, listen, I, I got this phone call and I was very uncomfortable because it made me feel like you were going to other people and talking about my work performance behind my back. I went home and talked to my wife about it. I talked to a friend about it, and I decided that was probably the best thing to do. Rather than have a sense of resentment begin to build in me, I should go and sit down with this person, and so I did, and they did not receive it well. They immediately got defensive. They felt like they were being called out. They began to kind of scurry and make excuses and even got a little bit direct. Well, I'm not going to sit here and be accused. I'm not accusing of anything. I just want to be able to feel like I can trust you as a coworker. that if there's something that you're concerned about about the way I'm doing my job, that you would come and talk to me rather than talk about the people that I'm supposed to be offering ministry to and with. I was 23 years old at the time that this happened. And while I believe my coworker was wrong to do that, I also know that the way that I processed that over the next four or five months internally was a lot more immaturely than I would process it now because of the gift of wisdom and age and life experience. I actually allowed my relationship with that person to become toxic for a short season. When they walked into a room, I didn't want to make eye contact with them. I didn't want to engage in chit-chat around the water cooler or at the coffee, mach- at the, you know, coffee machine. I, I wanted to avoid them all because of what? a few simple words that I didn't happen to like. It was just a conversation. He wasn't trying to torpedo my job. He didn't physically assault me. He didn't come to my house and spray graffiti on the walls. It was just a conversation. But yet for half of a year, those simple words and my way of processing it totally distracted me 
from what would have been God's vision of a spirit of unity and honesty and health in a church staff environment. I think back upon that simple experience and it reminds me that words have power. Our series, The Holy Spirit is in the Details, is all about recognizing that while sometimes we will have major life events or encounters spiritually, which will totally reshape the course of our lives, the fact is, for most of us, that the deepest and most transforming work of the Holy Spirit begins in the smallest details of our lives. The smallest things, the tiniest habits and routines and choices that we make over time, God compounds to begin to mold and shape character so that we're not the same person now, hopefully, that we were spiritually five years ago. And it is my hope for me that five years from now, I will look back to when I was almost 38 years old and think, man, I had a lot of learning to do. Man, I sure am glad God was continually to mold, continually molding the details and shaping those areas of my life. What Regan read for us is from one of my favorite books in the Bible. The book of James in the New Testament kind of stands alone compared to some of the other books of the Bible. It's written, we think, not by James the son of Zebedee or James the son of Alphaeus. This is most likely, most scholars agree on this, this is most likely, although it's not explicitly stated, James the Just. Now what's interesting about James the Just is that he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about your sibling relationships growing up, Think about all the good things that you saw in your siblings and all the bad things you saw in your siblings. What would it take for you to convince your siblings that you were the son of God? <laughs> I borrow that recognition from Andy Stanley. There's a profound truth there. I mean, if Jesus' half-siblings who had been raised with him recognized him as God's son, that's a pretty powerful apologetic case for Jesus being the Son of God. Jesus didn't just grow up and at 30 convince a bunch of strangers. No, the people who knew him most intimately believed and trusted that he was radically different than any other person they had ever experienced. James the Just writes his epistle as someone who's grown up in the same household as Jesus. Listen, if you want to get a complex, systematic theology, you can read the book of Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Colossians. You can read Paul if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of Christian doctrine. If you want the soaring prose of poetry, you can listen to the Psalms, some of the most beautiful and uplifting writing in the world about the nature of God. If you want those great historical narratives, you can go to the book of Acts about the early church or all the way back to the, the ancient history of Genesis and so on. But James is different. James isn't any of that. James is like, look... If you'll just sit down for a minute, I will tell you exactly what it means to behave as a Christian. Now, of course, it contains some Christian belief that is consistent with the other books, the 27 books of the New Testament. But James is just really, really straightforward about stop doing this, start doing this. 
don't do this anymore for these reasons. Start doing this over here for this reasons. And I've always liked the book of James because it's almost with a tinge of sarcasm which tells you something about my devilish sense of humor. Listen to what he says. Now we're reading this in the con common English, well, actually the New International Version today. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. If we stop there for a second, I think James realizes that the first and most prominent way that most of us fall short of being the people God wants us to be is in what we say. So he starts with the thing that is the easiest to mess up on and then begins to go through a long series of metaphors, four of them, about the nature of human speech and hum the human tongue. He says in verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. He continues, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a whirl of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Drastic, straightforward language. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. I have no profound exegetical truth behind this scripture. There is nothing that has grabbed my attention in the original Greek in these phrases. There's no really interesting historical context out of which James was writing that tells us something completely new. It's incredibly straightforward. And let me tell you, friends, I'm not here today to wag my finger in your face and say, shame on you for all the things you've said to other people that have this is such a convicting sermon for me. In the way that God has made me in my own personality, I am patient, 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 harsh. Ask my children. Ask the people that I work with. Ask my wife. I can be so patient and understanding until I lose my temper and then boom, I say something sharp and critical which has a tinge of anger sometimes. I'm not talking about blowing up on people or some kind of dysfunctional emotional abuse. I'm talking about those little words or phrases that slip out, that sting, and that wound. James is a mirror for me to look into and feel convicted. Because words have power. Words have power. Of all the human accomplishments in the world, we have yet, I have yet, to tame the power of the tongue. I want you to think with me for just a second about the power of words. Would we understand romantic love as deeply 
and romantically without a 500-year-old sonnet or play from William Shakespeare? Five centuries later, he is still the world's greatest playwright, and they're just words. He didn't win a war. He didn't build a building. He didn't develop a new area of science or make a great discovery. He simply used words, and we still live into those worlds that he created through the words that he spoke. Imagine on August 28, 1963, at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, standing with Lincoln's memorial behind him, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., using only words, only words, to share his convictions about a preferred future, one that was free of discrimination and destruction, oppression against a people group, and instead one of liberation and racial equality, using what? Just words. Words are more powerful than just communicating information. Words create environments and realities in which we live. Think, think with me for a minute. I'm going to give you a second to reflect on this question. What is the most painful thing that has ever been said to you? Odds are, for some of you, it shaped your entire sense of self-worth. And it can level you, just sometimes hearing the phrase, even if it's not directed, you can bring it back and make you feel that small. Words have the power, James says, to destroy. I will tell you, friends, that 15 years in church ministry and then growing up in the church the most dangerous thing in the life of a congregation is not the possibility of financial scandal, although that can be incredibly destructive. It's not inappropriate relationships among spiritual leaders, although that can be destructive. It is the slight and small ways that people can use their words to create faction, factions and divisions and tear other people down. Why is it so, why is that so destructive? Because it's so accessible, it's so tempting, and you don't even have to explicitly say, you know, I think that's a terrible person. All it takes is for one person, maybe in a small group, to confess something they're struggling with or something that's happened to them, something that's vulnerable, and on the way out the door, another person says to another, well, that was interesting all it takes. And there's a culture, a vibrant culture at which the Holy Spirit has been at work to build trust and accountability and compassion and it is destroyed. From what I hear, he's got a little something on the side with somebody at work. Does she actually think that dress looks flattering on her? With it, James says, an entire forest will be set ablaze. It's all in what we say. Words have power. 
when I think about this and I think about James' insistence upon the power of words, and when I think about the home in which he was raised, I can't help but connect the dots back to what the writer of the fourth gospel says in the very first verses. In the beginning was the Word. It's not a small W. It's a capital W. Meaning, Jesus. Jesus was the logos, the expression of God. Like we wear a logo on our clothing to indicate or signify the maker of that clothing. Jesus was the expression of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word. And without the Word, nothing came into being. The Word became flesh and made His home among us. We have seen His glory, glory like that of a Father's Son, full of grace and truth. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. If that's who Jesus is, full of grace, full of truth, the very expression of the heart of His Father, then I find profound wisdom in what the great spiritual writer recently deceased, Dallas Willard writes and says, For Christians, the means of our communication needs to be gentle because gentleness also characterizes the subject of our communication. What we are seeking to defend or explain is Jesus himself, who is a gentle, loving shepherd. If we are not gentle in how we present the good news, how will people encounter the gentle and loving Messiah we want to point to? Our words are not only about Jesus. Because of who he was, our words should be shaped by the character of Jesus. It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 12, the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. I remember being seven or eight years old at like vacation Bible school or some other kind of church event where kids were all present and us going through songs with all the motions. And there was one that had these robotic motions, like went something like input, output, what goes in must come out, input, output, daily we must choose. It had these motions, these robotic motions, which were corny even in the late 80s, but we were happy to do them because it was the closest we were going to get to dancing um, <laughs> in that particular church. It was, it was called dancing. Um, there's a profound truth. What comes out of us in our speech is reflective of what's inside of us. Jesus says the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. Here is a very simple, something that you've known for all of your life. It's so true. Christians should be known as those who speak life-giving words. Now, when I was being raised, I thought that meant no cursing. Don't call your brother a dummy. Don't call people stupid. Don't call names. And that's all true and fine. But I think the bigger picture is that Christians are those who create worlds through their words which are life-giving. We refuse to gossip. We refuse to tear others down by the words that we use. I remember when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I was in the sixth grade. I was riding my bike around the neighborhood with a couple of close friends, and one of them named was Wesley Thomas. I grew up in a loving home. I had, it's probably the greatest gift in my life is having been born into a loving Christian home. Wesley had a different set of circumstances. I remember going over to visit his home. He lived with his grandparents. Um, his father lived down in Miami. But every year to 
two years, his father would come up for a brief visit. And once when I was at Wesley's home, his father was home. And all I remember hearing from the other room was his father yelling for Wesley to get in there. Have you seen my lighter? Boy, if you've taken my lighter, where is my lighter? And kind of berating his son. Well, Dad, I didn't take your lighter. It wasn't. And his dad was just threatening. If you don't give me my lighter, I know you took it. I saw you looking at it the other day and trying to light it. If you don't find me my lighter. And I remember hearing words. This may not be an exact quote, but it was this essential phrase. Are you stupid or something, or don't you understand me? And then, honest to God, heard him say to his son, Sometimes I wish you had never been born. Um, about that time, same season of life, I remember being in church and sitting on the second row, this side, with my mother, I would lay down a lot of times during the sermon and put my head in her lap and she would tear off a little piece of the worship order and twist it up and she would just kind of run it over my arm and over the side of my face just to kind of occupy me and calm me during the sermon. I remember at the end of the sermon, I don't remember what it was about, I don't remember the song that we were singing, but at the end of that song, right before the, the final prayer was given, I just remember the loving embrace of my mother's hug, just reaching around and pulling me close where all is acceptance and contentment. And I remember her saying to me, you know your daddy and I have always had a good feeling about you and what God is going to do with your life. Just words. I heard from Wesley on social media about four years ago. We hadn't spoken in, gosh, 20 years. But he reached out on Facebook Messenger and just said, Hey man, um, I just got released. He'd been in prison for some kind of theft. And then said in that statement, I've still got the message. I guess God had two different plans for the way our paths would turn out. There were probably confounding factors in Wesley's life that were more than just one phrase by his dad. But the book of James could not speak more poignantly into that kind of reality. Our words matter. And I want to encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you when you find yourself beginning to speak something that is not life-giving into the life of someone else. And I'm thankful today that God has spoken the word who became flesh into my life and into yours. Amen. God, today I want to um, just kind of sense for a minute that your Holy Spirit is at work in the room and there are some people that when asked to think about harsh words that were spoken to them, it brought up a lot of painful memories, and there may be some healing that you need to continue to do. And I pray for those persons that you would speak words of comfort and restoration, and that you would, God, repair and heal those wounds. I also pray a word of challenge for myself and for all of us, 
that we would never speak reactively. And instead, Lord, we would carefully ask for your spirit to guide us, especially in moments where there are tense emotions that are felt, especially in moments when there needs to be truth that is spoken clearly and directly, that we would still seek the guidance of your Holy Spirit in the tiniest details of our word choices, that we would be known as those who would praise God with our words and there would not be evil that comes forth out of our mouth. Pray these things in Jesus' name and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 